James chapter 4 this morning, James chapter 4, and Lord willing we're going to finish up this chapter today, we'll start in verse number 13, James chapter 4, verse number 13, if you don't have your Bible with you today, of course there's always Bibles in the chair in front of you, so we encourage you to follow along, James chapter 4. Verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it. To him, it is sin. Father, we're thankful for your word, and I pray for the filling of your spirit and the help that that provides this morning. I pray you would guide us and direct us. Help me, Lord, to say only what needs to be said, but to say what does need to be said. Help me to be bold where I need to be, kind everywhere. I just pray for your guidance, and I pray, Lord, that we'd all have ears to hear your word this morning, that we'd accept your word as it is, uh, your word, that we would not uh, ignore it, we would not... Uh, to trifle with it, but that we would uh, accept it, apply it, be changed by it, and be made more like our Lord would have us to be. So help today. Fill us. Enable us. Teach us, we pray. And uh, whatever changes need to be made in our life as a result of that which we hear here today, help us to be faithful to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Tuesday, many of you watched the debate between uh, Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy. We had a pretty good crowd that came here and watched, and I know some of you watched it from your homes as well. And I'm sure there were varying opinions that came about as people watched it as to uh, how each man did and the facts or lack thereof that were presented by both sides. But, but I found the most interesting part of the debate, and it, it got a little bit long, I know, but I found the most interesting part of the debate to be right at the very end. Uh, somebody had submitted a question, and they were asking Questions submitted by uh, people, you know, online in various different ways. And somebody had asked the question of Bill Nye. They said, is there any room for God in the theory of evolution? And his answer, which unfortunately was kind of rambling and took a while to say, was, could be summed up in one word. His answer was, no, there is no room for God in the theory of evolution. Of course, Ken Han's answer was exactly the opposite. And I would submit to you this morning that that uh, particular debate, and especially that particular answer, uh, is illustrative of two very mutually exclusive perspectives of life. One I would call the no-God perspective, N-O, and the other one being the no-God perspective, K-N-O-W. Two completely different perspectives. Because that's the the fundamental difference between their two positions. One believes in an all-powerful God who made and makes and rules and and sustains all. And the other completely and totally rejects the possibility of that. One is a no-God, N-O. One is a no-God, K-N-O-W. And every other word of their argument on either side can be explained by that particular part. I believe that James is saying the same thing to us today. In our scripture, there is a way to live that says no God, you know, and there is a way to live if you know God, K-N-O-W. There is a humanistic perspective in which one can live, and there is a godly perspective in which we should live. 
And so let's break down a few verses this morning, and let's see if we can't see that, what James is saying to us today. James describes for us four different things that I think will make that all clear. Number one, he describes a fantasy, he describes a reality, he describes a remedy, and then he provides a summary. Let's notice those four things. First of all, fantasy. Verse number 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Fantasy. You know, we all as human beings want to believe that we are in control. We all as human beings believe that uh, we can control our destiny or we want to be able to control our destiny. And that's the great difference between the evolutionists of the world and the creationists of the world. The former believe that we are in control, that man is the center of the universe, and the latter believe exactly the opposite, that God is the one who is in control, and God is the center of the universe. The former is a fantasy. We think that if we make a wise choice in electing our leaders, that we're somehow influencing control over our lives, our country, our futures. We think that by training and preparation for a career, we're controlling our potential for future wealth. We think... That by our own wisdom and prudence, we can exert control and influence over our lifestyles. We think that by our own diligence and hard work, we can gather and prepare and plan for a life of ease and retirement. We think we can control. You know, that's what the rich fool thought, too. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 12. It says, he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Now, there's nothing wrong with planning, and James is not saying that. James is not at all talking about the fact there's something wrong with prudence, or there's something uh, wrong with looking ahead, saving, planning for the future, making wise choices. All those things are good. James is not, he's not saying anything wrong with that. Those are good behaviors. Proverbs, if you read Proverbs, would uh, say all those things are good. But the problem occurs when we succumb to this fantasy that lulls us into thinking that somehow we can control our future. When we forget that God is in control, that's when we err. One commentator described the person whose attitude James is uh, addressing there in verse number 13. He described him like this. He said he is self-assertive in his travel plans. We will go to this or that city. He is self-confident in his time schedule. We will spend a year there. He is self-centered in his trade relationships. We will carry on business and make money. Notice self, self. Self, not God. It's a humanistic perspective. It's the no-God perspective, N-O, rather than the no-God, K-N-O-W. It's a perspective where all our plans are worldly. It's what one commentator called a glaring example of practical atheism. Phil would like that one because he uses that term sometimes, too. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Fantasy. Look at the next verse. Verse number 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Reality. Reality. The reality, James says, is that we are not in control. And he gives us two different truths here that that demonstrate that fact. 
We are not in control. He says, first of all, you do not know. And he says, secondly, uh, uh, your, your, your life is a vapor. Those two different things. You do not know. And your life is a vapor. This morning in Mark's Sunday school class, he talked about the butler and the baker from Genesis chapter 40. And perhaps you remember that story. Joseph was in prison. And while he was in prison, Pharaoh's butler and baker were imprisoned with him. And they both had a dream one night. And uh, they came to Joseph and asked him to interpret their dreams. And, of course, the interpretation was that the butler would be released after three days and restored to his position of glory and honor. And the baker would have his head removed from his shoulders and, and die in three days. And we tend, do we not, when we hear that story, to feel so sorry for that poor baby. Oh, the poor guy. He's going to have his head removed in three days. But have you ever thought about the fact that the baker had something given to him that none of us have, or at least very few have? He knew exactly when he was going to die. He knew exactly how much time he had left. It's certainly not true for the rest of us. And that's what James is saying. You do not know. You don't know what the future is. We don't know. Bill Nye said over and over and over again how he knows. And God thunders back from the pages of Scripture. No, you do not know. And that's what James is saying to us. We don't have to go very far in reading the Bible to find many, many examples of people who thought they knew the future and were just slapped down by the fact that they did not know. For example, Herod, great King Herod, was one minute being worshipped as a god by his subjects, and the next minute he was struck down with this terrible disease and died. He thought he knew about tomorrow, but he did not know. Belteshazzar was the king of Babylon. He was feasting with his minions. He thought that he had accomplished all that could be accomplished in the world. He thought that he was the greatest that had ever been when God wrote with the fingers of a hand on the wall next to him and said, It's over, pal. You have been found wanting. And your kingdom is being taken from you. He thought he knew about tomorrow, but he did not know. Job was at the top of his game. Wonderfully, wonderfully rich family, great wealth, power, prestige. And then one day God took it all away from him. He had lost it all. His family, his health, his wealth, all gone. Thought he knew about the future, but he did not know. Mark mentioned Joseph several times this morning, talking about him in his Sunday school class. Joseph, what, a, what an amazing example. One day he's daddy's favorite, the next day he's sold into slavery. The next day he's his master's favorite, the next day he's thrown into prison. The next day he's the ruler of the empire. He just simply do not know. One day the favorite son, the next day a slave, the next day a favorite, the next day a prisoner, the next day a king. All of these may have fantasized that they knew about tomorrow, but they are evidence that we do not know. Consider how Solomon put it in one of his most oft-quoted Proverbs. He said in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Lean not on your own understanding. Why? Because you do not know. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Why? Because you do not know. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Jesus said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. No sense worrying about what you do not know. James said another thing. He said, your life is a vapor. Your life is a vapor. He used an interesting word there. It's a Greek word from which we get our English word atmosphere. Atmosphere. He's describing our life as being a vapor, a smoke, a wisp, a fog, a mist. 
In other words, something that's extremely short-lived, soon to disappear. Other places in the Bible we see a similar thought. We see our life described as, uh, as being frail and fleeting. And, and there are, there are uh, pictures of it given like this. It's described as a shadow. It's described as a breath, as a cloud, as a wild flower, as a vanity or a mist. All different places in Scripture. There's a secular song we probably all have heard many, many times that may have gotten its inspiration from that thought. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. It's amazing, isn't it, how many of us can live our lives completely in denial. We live as if tomorrow will never come. We waste minutes and hours and days and years and they vanish like vapor, never to return. We have, as James says, just a little time. And then it vanishes away. Solomon said the same thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'll leave that one for you to read on your own. But he warned about us there to think about God now, while we're young, before it's too late, because it will be too late very, very soon. Because the day is coming sooner than we think, when we will not be able to respond. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The psalmist said, my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a heart. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and his flower falls away. One man said, man's plans are always tentative. His plans are not his own. Time is not his own. In fact, life is not his own. So do you see what James is saying here? He's saying the fantasy is that we control our future, but the reality is we don't. We don't know it. And we have very little time indeed. And so we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray as the psalmist prayed, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my ages as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Surely every man vapor. James goes on, look at verse 15. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Here's the remedy. The remedy. The point is so clear, I don't think we need to say a whole lot about it, but James mentions a couple of things here. He says the remedy is uh, that we need to have two thoughts. We We need to think this way, if the Lord wills, we shall live, and if the Lord wills, we shall do. Two different thoughts. We don't know about tomorrow whether we're going to live or die, but God does. It's not within our control, but it's entirely in his. When Daniel was explaining the meaning of the writing on the wall to King Belteshazzar, we mentioned that a minute ago, Daniel told the king that, quote, God holds your breath in his hand and owns all your way. The psalmist said, my times are in your hand. And so if verse number 13 describes life lived with a humanistic perspective, then this verse describes living life with a godly perspective. If the Lord lives, or if the Lord wills, we shall live. Not a secret or magic phrase, an attitude, a way of living life. The know God, K-N-O-W way. Keeping in mind that God is in control and none of our plans ever supersedes or overtakes or overrides his plan. Rather than relying on the fantasy of controlling our own futures, we recognize and submit to his control. If the Lord wills, we shall live. If the Lord wills, we shall do. It goes beyond just an attitude of our life. 
has to do with what we do. I love the story of Paul's conversion. Well, Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road. And we talked about it when we were in, this, in our study in the book of Acts. But my favorite part of the story of Saul's conversion is, is after he had come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And he's laying there looking up into that blinding countenance. I love what he said. He said, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? If the Lord wills, we shall do. If the Lord wills. Recognition of and submission to God's will in our lives and our activities. That's the remedy. That's the remedy. James says it's not just an attitude. It pervades the plans, the activities, the action, and the behaviors of life. If the Lord wills. The Bible is shot through with that particular thought. Over and over we see it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. In Acts chapter 18, he said, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. Hebrews chapter 6, this we will do if God permits. Jesus said in John chapter 4 and verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So do we see it? The fantasy is that we can control The reality is that we cannot and that our life is extremely brief and fleeting. And the remedy that we need to live life recognizing and submitting to the control of God and the will of God in our lives. We turn our back on the humanistic perspective and we live our life with a godly perspective. Paul said if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. It's the only way to live. It's the only way for a Christian to live. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. It's the only way we can live. Warren Wiersbe told a good story in one of his books about this. He's talking about uh, this particular passage. And he said, how foolish it is for people to ignore the will of God. It's like going through the dark jungles without a map or over the stormy seas without a compass. And then he proceeded to tell a story about a time he visited the Mammoth Caves in Kentucky. And some of you have probably been there. I know I have. He said this. He said, when we visited Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, I was impressed with the maze of tunnels and the dense darkness when the lights were turned off. And then we got to the pulpit rock, which is a rock that looks like a pulpit. He said, when we got to the pulpit rock, the man in charge of the tour gave a five-word sermon from it. Stay close to your guide. And that's a good sermon. And that's what James is saying. The remedy, the remedy is the godly perspective. And then finally, look at verses 16 and 17. Having described the fantasy and the reality and the remedy, James is not going to sum it all up for us and give us a summary in these last two verses. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. I think James is just driving home his point here. He's saying it's ridiculous, it's arrogant, it's foolish, boasting about that over which we have no control. But not only that, he says it's sinful. It's sinful. And not accidentally sinful. Knowingly sinful. To know something is right and not do it is sin. To know what God wants in our life and not do it is sin. You know what James is here? He's right back where he started. He's reiterating the point he's been making all throughout the book of James. Faith without works is dead. Or, as he's stating it here, knowledge without practice is sin. 
Same thing. I like how the New Living Translation translates the verse. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So verse number 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Fantasy. Verse number 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Reality. Verse number 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Remedy. And verses 16 and 17, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, he does not do it. To him it is sin. Summary. You see, if you're living the fantasy that is verse 13, you're also living the evil and sin that is verses 16 and 17. But if you can just recognize the reality in verse number 14, then there's that remedy there in verse 15. That remedy that you can apply to your life. You can do it now. You can do it every day. You can do it until Jesus comes. And you can be living with a godly perspective. I ask you this morning, do you know what God wants you to do? Do you know what God wants from you? And are you doing it? Because remember what James said. Remember how he summed it up. He said, remember it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Think about that. That truth applies to every aspect of our lives. It applies to salvation. God's will is that you place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Have you done that? Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So many people answer that question, well, sure, I believe in God. But as James has already taught us, the demons make the same claim. If we press home... That that's not enough to just believe in God. That one must be born again. That one must repent of their sin and turn to Christ. That one must ask and confess and receive and believe. Trust Christ. It's amazing how many will refuse and walk away still lost. I say again, God's will is that you place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And I ask again, have you done that? Some will say, well, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Well, then I believe, my friend, you have not done it. You could just as easily remember or forget whether or not you've ever been married as to forget that. If you've ever trusted Christ, you'll remember. If your answer is, I'm not sure, then, my friend, I would suggest that you have not done it. I'll never forget, and I'm going to tell a story on Charlie Egley. I'll never forget when Charlie Egley trusted Christ as his Savior. And uh, we spoke at his home and Talked about it for a little bit. And I remember him bowing and praying. And then after it was all over, we walked out. And he was standing on his front porch. And Charlie said to me, I feel like a great weight has been lifted from me. And see, that's it. If you've trusted Christ, you know it. There's none of this. I'm not sure. You know it. And if you cannot answer that question, then you have not done it. And so I say again to you this morning, have you trusted Christ? If not, why not do it today? Because look at what James says. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and not to do it. It also applies to our sanctification, not just our salvation. God wants us to live holy and separated lives. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. 
And so I ask you this morning, are you striving with God's help to live a holy and separate life? Remembering it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Some people who name the name of Christ ought to be quiet about it. They ought not to let anybody know because their life is so much like the world that we just assume you'd be quiet about it. Some people, there's no evidence whatsoever in their lives. You know, I believe some need to confess their sin. Get right about these aspects of their behavior and lifestyle. Not because some preacher says so. Not because I say so. Not because some denomination or church says so. But because God says so. And because the Bible says so plainly. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. So I ask you again, are you striving with God's help to live a holy and separated life? I think it applies to our attitude. To our mindset. God wants us to be thankful people. Not down in the dumps, grouchy people all the time. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. How are you doing on that one? How are you doing on that one? I know it's terrible weather. I know it's crummy time of year. I understand that. It's February. But are you griping and complaining and thumbsucky all the time? Are you? You see, that would be the humanistic perspective of life. Not the godly perspective. We, pray, we fall prey to it too much. Godliness, the godly perspective, is thankfulness in all things. So how are we doing on that? Because remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And finally, it applies to how we spend our time. First Peter chapter 2 and verse number 15, this is the will of God. That by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. God wants us doing good. He wants us to be a people of good works. Busy about good works. He wants us witnessing with our words, but he wants us also witnessing with our lives so that others may see. So how are you doing on that? Remembering it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Oh, we could go on. There's other examples, I'm sure. But let's stop right there. That's enough. The fact is you're intelligent people and you can judge these things yourself and you can determine whether or not this is the word of God to you today or not. May God help us all. May God help me. May God help you to reject the fantasy that says we can control our lives and to accept and embrace the remedy of trusting him, always trusting him and his will for us. Let's put our hands in God's. Let's trust in God and let's learn to live in his will today and every day. Not the no God, N-O, the no God, K-N-O-W. Not the humanistic perspective, the godly perspective.